Well, I really appreciate the chance to hear the Word of God read. There's nothing like God's words penetrating our minds. In fact, the Word of God being read and being heard is is the foundation for building faith. And it's really that faith that we need to have built as we come here together this morning to now not only hear what God's Word says by just the reading of it, but also by the explanation of what that Word means so that we might grow in our faith in God. And I want to say, too, that I really appreciated what Donald noted, because the passage we're looking at this morning, and you can turn there if you'd like, is Matthew chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 9 through, well, we're actually looking in the context, but we're getting to the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13 of Matthew chapter 6. And, And it's really important because this is one of those passages that is probably among the most well known passages in the whole Bible. In fact, people, as Donald points out, who don't even know God might be able to recite at least portions of the Lord's Prayer. But just the ability to recite words, just the ability to say things that the Bible says does not actually make that thing that is said efficacious. In other words, it's not effective necessarily simply for the recitation of words. In fact, that's one of the things we'll be talking about in a moment that's in the the direct context of the Lord's Prayer because it was the habit of the Gentiles to do that very kind of thing. So this morning as we come to this passage and as we work our way toward getting to verse 9 and verse, through verse 13, the Lord's Prayer itself, we're, we're, um, we're hearing what Jesus says that sets us up to understand more than a set of words, more than just another pattern that we can sort of patter after him. But we're hearing the heart of God. And in particular this morning, we're looking at how God's words actually bring us into contact with God himself. And and that's really important. Because as we come into contact with God himself, it's in that place, at that moment, that we're transformed. You might remember what it says in 1 John chapter 3, and verse 2. It says, we don't know exactly what it is that we'll be like in the coming day when Jesus returns. But it says, we do know that when he comes and we see him, do you remember what it says? that we will be like him, and there's a reason given. Why will we be like him? What is the causative agent? What is the thing that makes us so that we are like him? That we see him as he is. And so this morning, while we don't have the full face-to-face revelation that one day we will have, we have the opportunity to look into the very face of God through the word of God, and in seeing him there, to be shaped more like him. It's really that that God is after. As we've gathered, our faith is being built, our likeness to Jesus is being grown, and we're here for that purpose. As we look in just a moment at Matthew chapter 6 and the surrounding context for verses 9 through 13, what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer that the Lord Jesus gave to us. Why don't we pray, and we'll begin with that in a moment. Our Father... We are so grateful to be able to call you, Father, and this morning as we come, we want to hear more than a set of words. We want to hear your word, for sure. We we want to hear what it is that you have to say. But beyond that, we want to hear who you really are. We want the revelation of God to penetrate our hearts by the Holy Spirit's power, that you would go deep into those places where perhaps we have misconceptions about God, 
Maybe we could even recite the right theology. Maybe we could even say the things that are true about God, but somehow in our actual experience, in our actual practice of walking through life, we, well, we don't actually act like the things that we say are true really are. And so we're asking that by your power and by your word this morning, you would correct those areas, giving us a vision for who it is that our God truly is and how the nature and character of our God, having been seen, changes us into his very likeness. We're asking that you do this for the great honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you may remember the story of the great and terrible Wizard of Oz. You might even be able to picture in your mind that scene uh, in the book. You might picture it from the movie. And, uh, but in the book, there was a scene in which Dorothy and the Scarecrow and the Tin Woodman and the Cowardly Lion come back to the throne room of the great and terrible wizard, and they stand there before the throne of the wizard. The wizard, of course, himself was invisible. He could not be seen. Only a voice could be heard. And they came to claim the promises that he had made to them prior to their quest. And, and this, is, this is what was said. Come to me tomorrow, the wizard said, for I must have time to think it over, that he was going to fulfill his promises. You've had plenty of time already, said the tin woodman angrily. We shan't wait a day longer, said the scarecrow. You must keep your promises to us, exclaimed Dorothy. The lion thought it might be as well to frighten the wizard, so he gave a large, loud roar, which was so fierce and dreadful that Toto, the little dog, jumped away from him in alarm and tipped over the screen that stood in the corner. As it fell with a crash, they looked that way. And the next moment, all of them were filled with wonder. For they saw, standing in just the spot the screen had hidden, a little old man with a bald head and a wrinkled face who seemed to be as much surprised as they were. Are you not a great wizard? asked Dorothy. Hush, my dear, he said. Don't speak so loud or you will be overheard and I should be ruined. I am supposed to be a great wizard. And aren't you? she asked. Not a bit of it, my dear. I'm just a common man. You're more than that, said the scarecrow in a grieved tone. You're a humbug. And I remind you of this story as we start looking at the context of the Lord's Prayer for a very important reason. Because it is as we see ourselves, as we really are, in a sense when the flimsy screen of our good behavior clatters to the ground that we find out that we're no more a wizard than that little old man. And, and Jesus' sermon, Jesus' sermon on the mount, the surrounding context for the Lord's Prayer, is very much like little Toto who knocks our self-righteousness to the ground. And he does it through a series of contrasts that show us what we really look like in light of the character of God. It's startling. And we spent time last week looking at that, looking into what God says about how we appear before him and before his absolutely perfect standard of righteousness. It can put fear into the stoutest heart, this view of ourselves as God sees us. So Jesus gives us a chance to, to really look into the mirror in the context leading up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. And and, and last week we talked about the fact that this mirror 
has, in one sense, adjacent to it, a picture, a portrait. And the portrait, do you remember the portrait? The portrait's not of you. The mirror shows you who you are. And that's what Jesus is doing from Matthew 5, 1, all the way to the point that we've come now. The mirror shows us who we really are, and it's who we, notice, really are. Not the person that we have, that we think we are. Not the person that we imagine is behind the screen. It is the person that we truly are that Jesus reveals to us in the first chapter of chapter and some of Matthew 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. That's who we really are. But he also affixes next to that mirror as we look at ourselves and maybe are a bit grieved uh, like they were as they saw the true nature of the wizard uh, and say, oh my, I have a problem. He affixes next to that his own image because all the things that are said in Matthew chapter 5 and on through the beginning of chapter 6 that show us who we really are also show us that Jesus is the only one who actually fulfills all the qualifications and requirements of the things that he has spoken about. And so I want to remind you of what it looks like to look in the mirror and at the portrait this morning as we kind of collect ourselves to be able to move on to how the character of God changes us. And so the first thing that we remember is that portion in Matthew chapter 5 and the first verses of Matthew chapter 5. We know the, time, the title of it. It's the Beatitudes. And you hear Jesus giving a number of statements in this section Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and even, he says, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And, and the thing that we notice as we look at this is that kingdom life is very different than the natural life. Well, very different is probably an understatement. It's exactly the opposite of the way that we normally think. And Jesus is presenting us with the reality, the truth, that to really live in his kingdom, everything about everything that I thought I knew must be re-understood. That's really what Isaiah chapter 55 is talking about when it talks about God's ways. It says, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying to us, I have ways that you cannot comprehend. And, and we're looking here in this first portion in the Beatitudes at the fact that Jesus' uh, explanation of the kingdom has to do with ways that are far beyond our own, that the kingdom life is upside down from natural life. And I want to point out, we talked last week about the fact that this word blessed can actually be interpreted happy. And, and happiness is an interesting idea to put in here because it is the very thing that we all are seeking. Yeah, blessedness sounds a little more churchy. It's a little more accurate, perhaps, but it sounds more churchy. And so when we say happy, all of a sudden it puts it right in the realm of the things that I pursue every day. It's like, well, yes, I'm always looking for the thing that will make me happy. Uh, philosopher Aldous Huxley said, the right to pursue happiness is, listen to him, nothing else than the right to disillusionment phrased in another way. And the reason is because every time we grab for happiness, it escapes us. If you pursue happiness, it is always one step beyond. It's never something you can just catch in your hand and hold on to. It's like grabbing for wind. You can grab at the wind all day. It does nothing to alter the course of the wind, and you never get a fistful of it. 
John Stuart Mill actually argued, in essence, uh, that happiness comes as the unintended outcome of it aiming at something else. Are you getting me? Think, think about it. When you took a family vacation, you took all the time to plan your itinerary, you put together all the appropriate stops, you planned fun things, and the thing that the family comes away remembering is the friendly cat at the Airbnb. Yeah, it's like, it was the thing along the way that you didn't plan, the spontaneous thing that happened along the way. That's just the nature of happiness. If you grab for it, most times it escapes you. And so Jesus is doing a very interesting thing, cutting in a sharper line than either of these two philosophers and showing us that natural happiness is not the thing at all. But there is a happiness that can be pursued, but it's pursued exactly backwards of the way that you think. So notice again, the things that Jesus says are the paths by which you pursue happiness. You pursue happiness by being poor in spirit. Well, that's a bad start. I'm not excited about that. To pursue happiness by humbling myself, by making myself in one sense to look like I really am. No, 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 please let me stand behind the screen. Because I'd much rather have all of you think of me as I really want to be thought of than to be seen for who I am. Or, or even take that last one. Happiness, Jesus says, is being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Oh, please, no. That, that's a bad idea. This is not the way to go. But that's what Jesus is showing us. Happiness grabbed for in the way that we normally pursue it always results in emptiness. It's, in Solomon's terms from the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity. It's worthless. There is nothing of any value to it. We can never hold on to it. But when we pursue happiness in the path that Jesus shows us, exactly backwards of our own path, he says that we not only can experience it, but that we can experience it in a lasting way because it is the way of the kingdom. The natural life shall perish, but the way of the kingdom is forever. So we don't have time to really fully unpack that this morning, but I want to remind you about that as we get started here. Uh, Oswald Chambers actually made an interesting comment in this regard that I think is worth noting. He says, if we could be truly happy and moral without Jesus, then why did he come? That's natural happiness. Are you hearing it? That's natural happiness. If we could be truly happy, he says, and moral without Jesus, then why did he come? He came, says Chambers, because that kind of happiness and peace is only superficial. Jesus, he says, came to bring a sword through every kind of peace that is not based on a personal relationship with himself. That's what the Beatitudes are doing for us. They're bringing us into personal connection with Jesus. Remember the mirror and the portrait. It shows us, if we look at those honestly, that we don't match any of those nine qualities in the, in the Beatitudes. Not one of them. We don't hit any one of those. But Jesus sure does. And his portrait here affixed to the side of that mirror shows me not only in the mirror my desperation and my, my enormous need, but as I look to the portrait, I see that he is the one who fulfills every one of these, the one who was poor in spirit, the one who did mourn. He was the one who was meek. He was the example in every way of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He was the one who was pure in heart and merciful. He made peace for us with God. Yes, with God, not just with another person. And he was persecuted for righteousness' sake. This is Jesus. This is our God. So he doesn't just leave us in desperation, looking at our own picture in the mirror, our own reflection in the mirror, and show us how bad we are. Yes, we are. 
But we have a Savior who matches every one of these requirements, every one of these qualifications for life in the kingdom. So Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. He shows us the kingdom life versus the natural life. And then he shows us the law. And he shows us that God's ways are not our ways. And he does it through a series of interesting statements. He actually takes laws and he takes those laws to different places than we anticipated that law really would go. Really, he takes us to the roots of those laws, the very fountain or the wellspring from which those laws come, and shows us that it's impossible to actually be pleasing to God unless you keep not only the surface of the law, but unless you keep the very underpinning of the law, that fount from which it comes. And he says things like, you have heard that it was said, and then he responds, but I say to you, you have heard that it was said, But I say to you, and each time he reminds us of a law that we look at and say is difficult to keep. That law is difficult to keep. And then he takes it to utterly impossible. That's just what he does. And he's again doing this for the reason of helping us to look in the mirror. So, for example, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's a difficult law to keep. Jesus says, let me tell you, it's impossible And he says this, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the point is really clear. It's really simple. No one keeps God's law. That's the point. Nobody actually keeps God's law. Well, nobody but the person in the portrait. Jesus himself. So other than that, no one measures up to God's standards. And It's helpful to pause for a moment here to think about this idea of the law of God because Jesus is building the whole center of the sermon on the law of God. And to realize that the law of God is really the revelation of the character of God. So why does the law matter so much? We could spend a long time discussing that. But let me just say for very short, for brevity this morning, that the law of God matters because it's the revelation of who God is. In other words, when we don't obey God, what we're saying is, I don't like that about you. I don't want that part of God for me. And that's a really important thing because we tend to think of disobedience as a matter of preference, as something that's kind of a prerogative. Well, I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not sure that it really matters that much. You probably thought that about stop signs or maybe um, how to approach red lights or, you know, things like that and thought maybe that's kind of a matter. But when it comes to God and to God's law, these are manifestations of the character of who God really is. So let me show you how that works. Uh, For example, if we are talking about loving your neighbor, um, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Remember that? He says, but I say to you, you shall love your enemy. And and so what Jesus is showing us here, and just that one in particular, is part of the character of God. And I want you to think about it. He's pointing out that God is the God who loved us, and we were in what condition when God loved us? Enemies. Yes, we were enemies of God, and so God's perfect character manifested would be obedience to that same truth. So now God, who loved his enemies, that's us, says you go and do the same. Love your enemies. Or you could take the you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says, I say, you shouldn't even look at a woman to lust after her. 
that testifies to the faithfulness of God, the God whose whole heart is devotedly set upon you. Not one part of God has his eyes somewhere else. What a God! What an amazing truth. So God is again unpacking the reality for us, giving us the chance to look in that mirror and say, I fall terribly short. And then he's showing us the portrait of the character of God himself, this one who is utterly devoted to us in every regard because that's the nature of who he is. We tend to think of God's ways primarily as being different than ours. And that's true. They are, as we pointed out earlier, opposite of our ways of doing things. But it's only half the truth. God's ways are different, but this is what I want you to catch this morning. They're also better. God's ways are different because they're better. We can't even imagine a world that wasn't created by a good God, but a God who was, would not rule in love would have created an entirely different If you just shut your eyes for a moment, imagined that the world were created by a God whose character was not just, for instance, loving or faithful or sufficient in any other quality that you care about, it would be a pretty evil world. It would be a terrible world. It would be an unimaginably dark place. But that's not God. God actually has ways that are different than ours because they are better, because they're right and good and true. That's what the law shows us as Jesus opens up to the central portion of the sermon, leading us to the Sermon on the Mount. He takes us beyond that, though, to the very motives, to the very motives of the heart. And this is what we find beginning in the first part of chapter 6, that we have motives that are displayed for us as being very important. And Jesus says these words, and I'll read them for you if you want to follow along in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We'll read through verse 8. This is what it says, immediately preceding the prayer that is called the Lord's Prayer. Verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus... When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, so that's the practice of giving, Now he says, let's talk about praying, and we're right to the context here. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus goes on following this in the context on the backside of the prayer to talk about fasting. So he talks about giving, he talks about praying in the middle, and on the other side he talks about fasting. Listen to what he says in verse 16. And when you fast... 
Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm hoping that you're getting the feeling of what Jesus is saying here and why he would, right in the middle, introduce this model prayer. So we understand that motives matter to God. In other words, even, catch this, even if we could practice kingdom life perfectly, and we can't, and even if we obeyed the law of God without a flaw, and we can't, we would still fall short because our motivations, those hidden things in the heart, are corrupt. And it comes out in some very interesting ways. For example, in the regard to prayer particularly, verses 5 through 8, we find that there are people standing on street corners to pray. Well, they're doing the praying. Hey, this is a good thing. Don't we want to pray in church? I mean, but, but, but Jesus says it doesn't matter because it's praying for themselves, for their own purposes, for their own glory, to be looked at by other people and esteemed. And Jesus says, well, um, there's a reward for that, and you just got it. That's it. There's nothing more for you. Or you find that it's like the Gentiles who, on the other side, are praying, heaping up words to try to make God hear them. And we'll be talking about that a little bit more. And God says... Well, that's all you have. That's not effective. Do not be like them, Jesus says specifically, because your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So anyone desiring lasting reward must remember that God sees in secret and he rewards what is done in secret and that's because he knows everything. God knows everything. And that's the quality that drives us to think about how we live as we approach the Lord's Prayer. God knows everything. It's kind of like the old Santa Claus rhyme. You could sing it, I'm sure. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you're bad or good. But, stop, instead of saying, so be good for goodness sake, Jesus tells us you can't do it. That's what he's saying in the sermon. So don't just try to be good for goodness sake. You can't be good. You'll never make it, is what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I told you last Sunday, um, in an honest confession, that I can't think of a single thing that I've done that I could say is done from an absolutely pure motive. And so what I was trying to convey with that is that this impugns all of us. All of us fall guilty. At least I do. And maybe you can think of something that you've done for an absolutely pure motive. That thought may not be pure, but, um, but you know, we can basically, there's no one who stands before God and can say, I have done righteousness and you must credit it to my account. There's not one. That's the whole purpose of this first portion of the Sermon on the Mount. But I don't want you to misunderstand what the idea underneath that is. So, the recognition of my impurity and the recognition of your impurity and need is really the, only the first step 
to change. It is important until we get to the place that we recognize we can't make it. There is no place to go for change. We talked last week about the doctor and how many people go to the doctor because they just like doctor's offices and especially waiting in them. Nobody does that. You only go to the doctor because you're sick. And that's precisely what Jesus is trying to show us. He's telling all of us, my friends, you are very, very sick and you need to go to the doctor. That's the first step toward change. But I want to let you in on a secret. Just by diving into your own heart to try to figure out where you've gone wrong, you will never figure it out. You'll never get it all straight. If you're just looking inside and trying to sift your motives, well, I wonder if this is a good motive. I don't know, maybe I shouldn't do anything because I don't think I have very pure motives. You're never going to get there. And, and the reason for that, Jeremiah gives it in a succinct way in chapter 17 and verse 9. He says, the heart's deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. It's sick, one translation says. And who can know it or who can understand it? This heart of ours is sick. You're not going to fix the problem. Here's the, here's the thing. You're not going to fix the problem just by sifting more carefully through your own heart. That's called introspection. And introspection cannot solve the problem because you can't know your heart. At about the point that you think you've sifted it finely enough, that's if you're still sane. Seriously. If you're still sane, at that point you find there's another layer because our hearts are multi-layered and every layer since the fall of man is a layer that is tainted by corruption. There's not a single layer inside that you'll find that has some spark of divinity or some hope for its own redemption. The only redemption we have is in Jesus. That's what we find. So sifting finer and finer in your own motivation won't solve the problem. That's why what Jonathan read to us was so helpful in Psalm 139. That closing uh, two-verse couplet really helps us to think about what we are doing when we come to understand that our motivation, even our basic motivation, is faulty. And this is what David says, and it's the thing I would encourage you to do. It's not introspection, it's self-examination, and it's asking God to do it. He says, search me, oh God. You're catching who the searcher is, right? God is the searcher. You search me, oh God. And he says, you know my heart. And does God know our hearts? Oh yes, we don't know it. It's deceitful. It's desperately wicked. We can't even figure out how desperately wicked. But God knows. You search me. You know my heart. You try me and know my thoughts, David says. And he says, and if there's any grievous way in me, any way that departs from the straight line of your truth, any, law, any line that departs from the obedience to your law, any line that departs from the, uh, the kingdom life that you've called us to live, then he says, lead me in the way everlasting. Can you hear what's happening in David's prayer? He's calling on the only one who can actually do this. I don't want you to stop just at saying, I'm corrupt and can do nothing about this. That's true. That's, that's true. But God can. And so we appeal to him and say, oh God, who knows our hearts, would you, as you did for David so long ago, search us, know us, try us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Jesus doesn't just bring us through his great sermon to make us desperate. 
to know that God sees us, that he knows everything about us. He brings us through so that we're desperate enough and hungry enough to seek help. He he shakes us from our smug self-satisfaction for the purpose of bringing us to the living bread and to the water that will quench our thirst forever. He brings us to the point of hopelessness to give us real and lasting hope. He is the source of real happiness, of real righteousness, and in the area of motivation, real purity. This is the mirror in the portrait. And we see here as we look into the mirror that we are corrupt, but that God is absolutely pure and that his faithfulness to us is undiluted and unmixed. It's unadulterated, his faithfulness and his love for us. But he does know everything. He knows everything about us in every detail. Well, we're we're moving toward the Lord's Prayer, and I want to show you quickly a a trail map through the Lord's Prayer. We're going to be getting to this in the future, at least starting on it next week. And, And I want to show you that what Jesus is essentially doing is giving us a theology lesson in the prayer that we're going to unpack. And and so you'll see things like this, that God is our Father. He's our Holy Father. He's our King, the Sovereign Lord, who from eternity will bring His will to pass. He's our provider. He supplies for every need. That's verses 11 and 12. And He's our guide, our safe passage through the temptations and trials of life. This is the theology that God is bringing us to, that Jesus is bringing us to, so that we can understand and be changed by him, as we heard about in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, so that we would see him as he really is, and as we see him, be transformed into his likeness. It's important because our understanding of who God is determines how we think about everything else. If you want to be free from a habitual sin, you have to begin with your view of God. If you want to break the bondage of a shameful past, you have to begin with your view of God. If you want to start a new, fresh, healthy relationship pattern, you have to begin with your view of God. If you want to end your days in fulfillment and confidence, you have to begin with your view of God. There's a pastor uh, whose name is Tim Chester, and he's written a book called You Can Change. And in this book, his premise is very valuable for us. And it says this, God, catch this, is bigger and better than all your sinful desires. God is bigger and better than all your sinful desires. But here's the problem. Until we stop to look at who he really is, we're pretty convinced that our desires are better that our thoughts on happiness are more effective, that our way of accomplishing the will of God is more effective, that our motives, as you know, somewhat tainted as they are, aren't all that bad. So God, says Chester, is bigger and better than all your sinful desires. And it's this understanding of God that's the basis for true, essential change. It's the basis for success. It's the premise on which identity and lifestyle are both built. But we've highlighted one, com- one trait this morning that we want to talk about a little bit more in regard to God, and that's the trait that God knows everything. And I want to show you four implications of God knowing everything in the few minutes that we have remaining. God knows everything, and because he knows everything, we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide. Now, this is the natural response to sin and to guilt. 
The natural response to sin and to guilt is to hide. In fact, you find it in the very first couple in the Bible. That very well-known, familiar passage in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And you find that when the man and his wife, when Adam and when Eve had sinned, what was the thing that they did right away? They hid. And they hid in two different ways. They hid, first of all, by making themselves some fancy clothes. Well, they were scanty clothes, at least. I'm not sure they are fancy, but they were scanty clothes that tried to hide their nakedness. And then they did a second thing. They didn't just try to hide by their clothing. Do you remember what they did? They went to the woods. Yeah, they went to the woods. They tried to escape. So they tried first to cover, and then they tried to escape. And that pattern for hiding has been the pattern for us ever since, every time we run into sin in our lives. We like to hide from God. We like to pretend that it's really not true that God knows everything. We somehow think that by putting on the appropriate gear or by running to the right place, we can escape the eye of God. Think about Jonah fleeing from God, going in the exact opposite direction and doing it in the inner part of the ship. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Think about people even at the end of time. At the end of time, it says in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, listen to what it says. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath is come, and who can stand? It's from beginning to ending of the Bible. Every time we encounter the true nature of our sin in light of the character of God, our natural tendency, our natural tendency is to run, to hide, to try to cover up or to try to escape. But the problem is that hiding only does one thing. It covers our eyes and it cuts us off from the source of real help because there is no way to hide from an all-knowing, all-seeing God. In this particular context, the religious leaders were hiding behind a screen, a pretense of spirituality that was really just a sham. Their prayers were attempts to look okay on the outside while they remained corrupt and dirty on the inside, decaying where other people couldn't see. They just couldn't stand looking in the mirror and seeing what God really said about them. They thought that it was okay that they were fooling people and forgot that there was absolutely no chance that they could fool God who knows everything. But God is not looking for people who are okay. God is looking for people who know they are broken and stop trying to cover and stop trying to run. Let me show you just one way that we tend to do this, that we try to cover and that we try to escape, and it's called compensation. Compensation is trying to make up for something bad by doing something good. So you might say something to yourself like, I'll do it better next time, but it's a little bit like making a batch of brownies where you've dumped in too much salt and figuring that you're going to add enough sugar to make up for it. It, it doesn't work. I'm not a cook, but I know that. And you who are cooks know that it's certainly true. You can't just add more of something that you think is good to compensate for something that is not appropriate to this recipe, or in the case of sin, that's just bad. So when we compensate, 
uh, that's how we compensate when we have failed. I'm going to try to do something extra good. And you run into this all the time in people who are trying to do something to make God happy with them because they know as they look in the rearview mirror that he can't be too happy. Right? And, and you might have been one of those people at times. I'm going to read my Bible twice as long today. I'm, I'm going to set aside some time to pray. Oh, we're talking about... Oh, I'm going to do... That's compensation. It's called religious compensation, and it never appeals to God. It doesn't fool him. It doesn't hide you from him. It doesn't give you any safe place to run. But there's another way that we tend to compensate, and I think it's important to look at because it's this tendency to compensate for future sins. (laughs) In other words, I have this desire to do something. I know it's not right. Now, you may not admit it to yourself in exactly those words, but... You might have thought this. It's kind of the old McDonald's ad run over again. You deserve a break today. And you think, you know what? I think I do. I've worked really hard. I have done some really good things. And so, you know, a slip or two isn't that big a deal. You might have done that. I, I might have done that. Thinking, well, I can compensate for what I'm about to do by the good I've already done But it doesn't hide you from God. You don't earn credits to offset the bad that you want to do. I wonder where you're trying to escape, trying to hide from God. Can I just tell you, there's no burden so great as the weight of unconfessed sin. It sits on your chest. It holds you by the throat. It taints every joy. It deepens every sorrow. The only answer is not to hide, but to run to God. And the way we run to God, we're told in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, is to confess and to forsake. In other words, to confess is to say the same thing that God says about it. So when I come, I run to God, and I acknowledge that my sin is everything that God says it is. That it's truly as bad as he says it is. That it truly affects me as deeply as it really does. I acknowledge that the truth is true. And it's amazing, truth always sets free. But then we also forsake it. He says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Now I'm going to tell you the truth. It's going to seem like confessing will kill you. That is the very worst possible thing that you could ever do. It, It will feel like it will kill you. But can I tell you that it's actually exactly the opposite, that it will give you life and set you free as you've never known before. So when we encounter ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8 to this point, and we find that we have fallen short of God's standard in every regard, we can confess it and forsake it. We can run to God and not hide. We don't have to hide anymore. Because God knows everything, we also don't have to perform. You find this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, those verses that we just read, the hypocrites who love to pray standing on the corner for everyone to see. It's kind of like the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, verses 11 and 12. I think Timber read this for us last week. The Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But Psalm 139 that we just heard this morning reminds us that God actually knows you far more deeply than what appears on the street corner. 
In fact, he knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you speak them. He knows your deeds before you do them. So get it. God knows everything about you. And he's known everything about you, Psalm 139 tells us, since before you were born. There's never been a time and there never will be a time when God doesn't know everything about you. Performance doesn't fool God. Trying to get spiritual brownie points by standing on the street corner, by praying, is utterly ineffective. The only thing that performance does is highlight our inadequacy and add hypocrisy to our guilt. It just layers the sin. You might be able to spot performance through a few simple questions. Like this. What would I think of myself if I no longer could do blank? What would I think of myself if I no longer could do this thing? Is my worth tied up in that thing? Is, my, is it the performance that actually makes me valuable? Hmm. Or you might think this question. I feel really good about myself when I blank. It could be that that thing is a performance. Many of you know the name Corrie Ten Boom. Um, she survived the Holocaust and uh, in places as terrible as Ravensbrück, the concentration camp in Germany. And uh, she lived through that experience and she went on to talk to many, many people around the world about God's forgiveness. But did you know what happened at the end of her life? At the very end of her life, she had a terrible stroke. Now this woman, who had been God's communicator on this very important matter of forgiveness, had spoken to thousands and thousands of people, could not speak. Now if Corey had found all of her value in the fact that she could perform for God, she was no longer of any worth. That's a troubling thought. But Corey's value and your value is not based on your performance. It's based on God's character and his love for you. He already knows everything about you, and he loves you anyway. Sometimes we might even catch ourselves saying this, and it's a performance statement. See if you've ever said it. I've done my best, Lord, so you have to hear me. Right? I, I did my devotions today, so you've got to listen. I, I talked to so-and-so about Christ Jesus, therefore, you've got to come through for me. Guys, we don't ever perform to get God's approval. We don't somehow twist his arm by what we do. We don't augment God's capacity because we somehow do things for him. But it's our natural tendency to perform as one way to hide. Don't perform. Invite God into the deepest recesses of your heart and pray with David, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Well, I'm very happy that I have next week as well because I want to show you two more things that uh, we'll be talking about next week. We don't have to shout and we don't have to worry. Um, these are two really important ideas that I'm excited about sharing with you. And I'm hoping that we'll not only talk about these two very important thoughts 
on how we understand God knowing everything in the way that we live. In other words, the fact that God truly is omniscient, if you want to use a theological term, the fact that God is omniscient changes my whole life. It changes it because there's really no purpose to hiding. It changes it because there's no place for performance. I don't augment the character of God in any way. And we'll talk next week about the fact that it also means we don't have to shout to be heard and we don't have to worry anymore. In addition to that, I'm hoping it will actually touch the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer. I can hardly wait to get there. Our Father in heaven, I hope those words so full of depth and meaning will ring in your souls through this week as we anticipate the pleasure of actually getting to this place where we see not only that God knows everything, but hold on, this God who knows everything is your Father. What a God. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that you've given us your word and that your word has such practical implications for us in every regard. We're praying today that you would take these things that we've heard from Matthew chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5 and from other references that we've cited, these things that are the very word of God, that you by your spirit would take them and apply them to our hearts in the places where we need them most. Lord, I, I don't know where everybody else is struggling, but I do have some ideas about where I struggle, and I know that these two truths that I don't have to hide and that I don't have to perform have vast implications in my own experience. Would you take those truths and apply them for each one of us in this coming week as we anticipate being together again and hearing more about your word, more about the God of the word, and especially about the God who knows everything and who is our Father. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.